You're listening to Elevate the Hunt, the podcast that takes you deeper into the issues surrounding our lifestyle and passion for hunting. I'm Everett Headley, and I'll be your host. Welcome back, everyone, to the Venery and Veritas podcast. We really appreciate your patience this past summer as we took a short break, but we've been busy recording new guests and digging into more great topics. If there's something you'd like for us to cover, make sure you find us on Instagram or on the web at veneryandveritas.com. This episode was a few years in the making. I had discovered this unique opportunity that New Mexico offers hunters, and after many applications, you'll hear they drew my name. Finding information on hunting oryx was sparse, and a lot of it was dated. So I went straight to the source with Gilbert, and what followed is two hours of pretty much everything you need to know about hunting oryx, both on-range and off. And if oryx aren't in your sights, then the history of how this African antelope came to our continent still makes this episode worth the listen. I hope you enjoy it. Gilbert, thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me on, man. We've uh, we've been telling some stories before we started recording, and I said, man, hey, wait, we, we got to stop, push record, because we're losing some really good content. This is going to be a great podcast, I am sure, so I'm really excited to have you on today. You are the hunting administrator for the White Sands Missile Range, and that is a kind of an impressive title. What took you to that point? How did you get to be the person that is in charge of running over 2 million acres of hunting? Well, man, it's an interesting story, man. I graduated from New Mexico State University with a biology degree and I graduated and couldn't find a job, couldn't find anything. Went a couple of years there of, of just being a banker, really, and working, the, you know, Monday through Friday. And I had a friend, a, a best friend of mine's brother, David Black, was actually running the Oryx program here, the hunts at White Sands. And uh, I said, man, you know, is there anything I can do? And can I volunteer or anything? He's, yeah, come out. So for a full year, I would work. I'd get off of work on Fridays uh, and work another 40 hours, Saturdays and Sundays, just basically taking measurements. Uh, That's all I would do is take measurements of Oryx and uh, listen to hunters and watch them go out. I did that for a full year. Um, The next year, he said, uh, you know, I think we can get you on a temporary basis and maybe pay for your gas. Well, I did it for free before. (laughs) I was like, I just need to get my foot in the door. I need to learn. I need to get some experience. And and that's how it started. And then, you know, this is going on my 19th year. Um, I've been extremely fortunate to be uh, mentored by probably the leading expert in Oryx is Patrick Morrow, which is a government biologist there. And then uh, Doug Burkett, who is my partner, who's been on another, over 30 years of experience on, on the, the missile range as well. So um, the last 19 years, I've just been very fortunate to be in a situation where I do what I love. You know, I'm not, I don't work. I don't think I work a, a day from helicopter surveys to any, any from bats to lizards to bears. You know, it's just, a, it's just an awesome experience. And uh, these two guys have just been able to pour their knowledge down down to me that and and I just uh I'm just so grateful for that opportunity and that's how that's how it came to be. Well I gotta tell you man your passion really does come through. I, I drew the White Sands Missile Range Oryx tag three years ago and was was really excited. We'll talk more about that as we get through the podcast. But when I called you up and I started to to just pick your brain and I wanted to know A to Z about Oryx and and get a biology profile and everything else, you you, you kept asking me, is this too much? Is this what you want? And I'm like, yeah, man, just keep going. I'm writing down notes, taking notes of, of <laughs> everything that you were saying. So 
when I launched the podcast this year, one of the things I really wanted to do was was provide an education to people that on on issues that they don't really uh, get very often, right? And and when I drew that Oryx tag, I really started to kind of go in that nerd mode and do all the research that I could. And there was virtually nothing out there. There were no. a couple of people who had done it before that were on online forums that I reached out to. There wasn't much. And so when I talked with you, it was really informative for me. And you gave me a couple of resources to look up, one of which I think was from the early 70s, uh, the last time a study was done on Oryx in, in New Mexico. And so what I'm really hoping that we do today, Gilbert, is cover Oryx, but you know everything peripheral to it as well, hunting down in that area, hunting on the on the range there. So that when guys draw that, there's a podcast that kind of just will walk them through everything, point them to everything that they kind of need to know when they come down to White Sands so that they can be successful. Again, it's not a super hard, high 90s percentage rate of success, but there's a lot that goes into it to get to this point. So that's why we're here today, Gilbert. So I want to ask you right off the bat, working in New Mexico, what is the weirdest thing you have seen? I mean, have you seen E.T.? Have you seen anything <laughs> flying around? Is there something where a government yeah. official came up and said, yeah. you cannot talk about this? They've never seen anything weird like that, you know, as far as testing or anything like that. Usually, usually have blinders on and you're not in, they don't allow you in the areas where you're not supposed to be. So it's not nothing like I've ever seen anything top secret or anything. And if I did, I couldn't, I don't have the clearance to even See that, stuff, see that stuff. So weirdest thing I've ever seen is as far as animal wise, oryx wise, is we had a harvest come through where an oryx horn had curled all the way underneath the lower jaw and then came to the jaw and then came out the front right below, right below his eyes, probably about three or four inches and out the front. So it came up around over his ear, down to over his, underneath his jaw and then back out and it's a straight point. Um, it was still grew, grew out like that. And that's probably about the weirdest thing as far as Oryx harvest that, I, that I've seen. It's amazing that it was surviving with that. Oh, yeah. Through there. They're unbelievably strong. I've seen uh, horn punctures through skulls that, that, that are old and crazy, crazy stuff. I've seen a, probably about a 25-inch, 30-inch horn go all the way through the back uh, hind quarter of an oryx and all the way through it you know it's just they're just incredible but uh yeah they can they can deal with stuff so living on well you don't live on white sands but working on white sands missile range got to be a a really interesting job the big picture there for us if you can set it for us is really they do a lot of testing there's a lot of things that is the proverbial classified and the work done there has been uh, really influential from World War II all the way up until to today. So can you give us just the the history there of how White Sands came to be? Well, man, that one's a, that's a, 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 long, a kind of a long story. But so right before the start of Pearl Harbor, the government was looking for large tracts of land to be able to do these uh, bombing training exercises. There were several sites in California, Arizona, New Mexico, uh, Texas, and they picked several, and, te- and New Mexico was one of them. Uh, and right side of Alamogordo, New Mexico, is the Tularosa Basin, the Chihuahuan Desert there, a large tracts of public land that was available to them, over 1.3 million acres at that time. Ranchers were there, state land was there, and so... 
in an effort to try to find a facility, a place where they could do these exercises, bombing of Pearl Harbor, which actually kicked it off in 1941. Uh, when that happened, um, the government was in full war mode. Um, and due to the war effort, the Department of War basically took over all the leases in that country, cattle leases in that country. And most of those ranchers, from what I understand and read, were very patriotic, and they did that. They understand that after the war, they would be, be able to come back and continue their, their ranching, which most of that time was ranching uh, uh, cattle. At that point, it was the Alamogordo bombing range and gunnery range was, was established. And it was a big part of the war because in the 45, when that was done in 1945, it was just that within weeks of establishing the Alamogordo bombing range that the Manhattan Project moved in and the atomic bomb uh, was tested, gadget was tested in the stallion range, which was the northern portion of the Alamogordo bombing range. When that happened, you know, we, we then uh, the bombed Japan and stuff. So at that point, the war was over. But now we're in a new era. Now we're in the Cold War where the nuclear race is on and the government realized that we still needed this this area. And um, they needed to be able to extend it. So they extended other gunnery ranges to the south. And, and now uh, White Sands Mills Range is born. We, it totals 2.2 million acres. It's a, over 100 miles long. It's 40 miles wide. And um, you can imagine elevations anywhere from, you know, 38,000 feet uh, I mean, 38,000, 3,800 feet, uh, all the way up to 8,900 feet, you know, at its tallest peak, you know, uh, the Chihuahuan Desert Basin, the Tularosa Basin, and then the Jornada de Muerto, which is the northern part, um, is basically Chihuahuan grassland, desert scrub, mesquite, gypsum dunes. Um, and we have juniper pinon woodland forests. Um, and so we encompass a lot of ecosystems in 2.2 million acres. But that's the basic rough draft of how White Sands was came to be. Um, and it all started for the war effort at that point. And there are different ranges within the whole base or facility. It's easy for us to set them up by hunt areas, right? So the Stallion Basin is a... Jornada Muerto, uh, up in the, the northwest corner. Rose Canyon is the eastern basin, the, the Tularosa Basin. Um, and we have the San Andres Mountains uh, and the Skirter Mountains, which is a mountain chain that basically splits the two. It completely splits. It's about roughly 100 miles worth of mountain chain. And it just splits the two. And there's a gap that we call Mockingbird Gap um, that kind of connects both of those two ranges. And... It's those mountains. What what were they called again? The San Andres Mountains. Yeah, they yeah. are. They're not a joke. They are. No, 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 no. They're no, no, rugged. No. They're sharp no, no. peaks. You know, I I was born and raised in Deming, New Mexico, and spent a lot of my time on the Florida Mountains, where the ibex go, uh, where the ibex were introduced, and um, I actually also do the desert bighorn sheep hunts uh, since 2012 when they got delisted in 2011 and. And I've been very fortunate to, of the 36 maybe uh, bighorn sheep hunts, I've been able to escort probably 17 of those one-on-one with hunters. And so I lived through them 
So I do a lot of, of, of I love bighorn sheep hunting. Um, and that country's no joke. And, you know, probably one of the leading outfitters in New Mexico is uh, Frontier Outfitters. And um, he thinks that uh, they're, they're probably one of the toughest rugged mountains in, in New Mexico, uh, along with the Florida mountains. Yeah, I've been putting in for the, the Ibex over there as well. And New Mexico has not been kind to me in, in the draws. Yeah. Uh, so I've been I've been waiting very patiently, but that is a hunt that I really want to experience. It you see the pictures, uh, you hear the stories. I think two years ago there was an airman that died after a fall yeah, in those sure. mountains, and you see pictures of people uh, having to rappel down to to find their harvest and yep. helicopters being used. Sometimes I mean it is it's a legit hunt that has a peril to it that very few other hunts around our uh, you know, North America have within. And I think people really underestimate not only the desert aspect, but the mountain aspect in, in those hunts. And, and I got to tell you, man, my hat's off to you for being a part of that and being willing to go up with these guys to find these sheep and these, these Ibex and these orcs, because it is, it takes a, a determination and a, a grit that I think a lot of hunters want to say we have, but when it comes right to it, Man, I'm not so sure we do. Yeah, you know, that Ibex hunt with the bow is probably the toughest hunt in the lower 48. You know, we have a 2 to 3% success rate on that hunt. Unbelievably rugged. Um, and the San Andreas, I'm telling you, spend a lot of time up there. And there's pots that, you know, you, you're just not going to get to the animal. It is intense. It is intense. Some of that country. That's amazing. So when I do draw that Ibex tag, can I call you to, to guide for me? A hundred percent, man. That that would not be a problem. Actually, my my cousin is a crazy fanatic bow hunter, and he's killed six with his bow. It's a record. He's taking what he can get. So he's gotten uh, two nannies and three billies, and um, and he's tried them with his recurve. He's a total diehard. But uh, yeah, no, if you get that ibex on, you definitely need to to give me a call. And there's uh there's some areas that have that over the counter area for sure. ibex, right? Because they're trying to keep habitat for for desert bighorns. Is that the the story? No, no. It's just um, there's no desert bighorn uh, near near that the Florida mountains, uh, which is I'm in Las Cruces right now. It's just 60 miles uh, uh, northwest of us, and uh, basically. They're trying to keep them on the Florida mountains. So that off-range hunt is to make sure that if there's any spillage that they don't expand and spread out. Um, that's all they're doing there. Okay. And the, and those are over the counter, right? Or easy Yeah. Th- no, they're over the counter. Um, but that's, that's the one of the things. Um, they're not very plentiful at all, man. Right. Especially right now, the population has been down. They've hit them really, really hard. You know, five, six years ago, the population was really high and they were spilling over and you could catch one or two off off on the Three Sisters side or a Cook's Peak side of the, of the mountain ranges around there. But it's very difficult. It's not it's not like you, you grab one of those when you're doing a javelina hunt or you go out coyote calling so that if if you have it, you run into one, you can harvest it. I would love to talk about Ibex, would love to talk about Barbary sheep. We're here talking about Oryx today. In our prep uh, for today's episode, you sent me an article from 1974 of the first Oryx hunt. And, yeah. And I thought, man, that is a really cool piece of history. That's uh, <laughs> that's like 50 years ago, the first yeah, time man. somebody harvested an Oryx. The thing that really struck me, she 
she had to take multiple shots. And one of the things you tell us in this orientation package that you send to successful uh, draw uh, hunters that draw is they can soak up a lot of lead. They're just notorious for it. And, and so when I, I read that and I thought, Oh man, that's uh, nothing has changed in 50 years. They're still doing what orcs do. Yeah, man. When, when you read through that of how many times she had to shoot that animal. And then even when it was down, she still had to shoot it again and it struggled back up to his feet and had to shoot it again. Two out of 10 times, you're going to kill him with one shot. The rest of the time you're doing a follow-up shot. A biggest mistake guys do, especially hunters from back East is that they'll do a shot and then they'll let, we'll just let them go lay down. Orcs don't lay down. And, and if they do, they'll stay alive for a long time, even with a vital, a vital shot in the lungs or in the heart. It just, they just don't want to die. They, they are very robust. They're very muscular. Uh, all their vitals are protected, way pushed up front. Shot placement is so critical. Um, and the, the bullet is in 2009, you know, I, I'd seen all these orcs getting shot and I can't tell you the, how many countless times I've seen orcs get down and get right back up and take off. And, you know, I'm talking miles, I'm talking three, four miles and just gone. You just no way you can get to them or, or track them. Very difficult to track just because of the amount of tracks in on the landscape at all already you know they don't bleed very well sometimes they don't bleed at all their their height is very thick so yeah man these guys can soak up lead and and keep trucking uh without a problem one of the things that you send out to us in that that welcome packet is this overlay of their vitals and that front shoulder and so as an african antelope and i want to talk next about how they actually got to america but that front shoulder bone is covering the vitals and people think like our North American ungulates like elk and deer, the, those vitals sit a little bit behind or uh, back of that front shoulder bone. And so you can get right in that pocket, but with Oryx, you you're teaching just shoot straight through that shoulder because that's what it's going to take to punch through to get to those vitals. And it, the, the anatomy is really different and, and you, you push it because you do have a lot of wounding loss because guys just, they're not, who's used to shooting oryx, right? Not a lot of us. And and it's really important for somebody coming in who's never hunted oryx before to know, yeah, you might lose some meat, but you're going to anchor that animal right where it is. And you have to do that because if you don't, you're going to have a story like Susie did back in 74 where you're tracking three miles trying to find it and putting five, six, seven rounds into it. Yeah. You know, and, and the longest track job I actually did for someone was actually – uh, seven miles, and um, that was eleven shots. And so, um, and I think he get connected like on eight of them. Um, and so, what happens with that? Like you said in that that diagram, all their all their organs are pushed forward, and that leg that leg bone and the shoulder is protecting all of their vitals. Uh, and we'll, if it's just right above that racing stripe is where you want to put that shot. And uh, it's really high on the leg, really, in that lower shoulder, you know. Um, uh, and so when you take that shot, you're guaranteeing a top of the heart shot and lower lungs. Um, and that's your best opportunity. A lot of people, you know, got to go for the next shot. Well, they have a very unique anatomy where that neck bows down. And then curves back up. So there's a big muscle gap, huge muscle gap. And 
if you shoot the neck, if you don't have it in the right spot, all you're shooting is that piece of vertebrae that extends straight up. And they've got 10, 12 inches of vertebrae that just goes along their neck, their cervical vertebrae. And you're just knocking a bone off. They'll fall over and then they'll come right back up because it is not lethal. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that. They definitely can take a bullet for sure. Well, the other thing I was noticing too through my my early years um, was that bullets were not penetrating. They just weren't doing, I mean, these guys were shooting ballistic tips. These guys were shooting these soft lead points. These guys were shooting all these bullets. And it was not until um, Barnes came out with a triple shock uh, um, copper bullet that these guys, what are you guys doing? I kill them with one shot. I kill them with a shot. I kill them with one shot. And I'm like, what bullet are you using? What bullet are you using? So as they come through the check station, I keep on hearing about this bullet, you know, and, and finally, I was like, man, I need to change my ammo. I mean, this, this ammo's not working for me. So when I finally, um, I actually, when I had my first orcs hunt, I was like, I need to find a different ammo. I got, I'm not going to be one of these guys, you know, the countless stories of I did, I lost my orcs, you know, um, and 2009, 2010, uh, Horton came out with the GMX bullet. And from then on, I was sold. Um, their thumpers, those non, and, and I didn't even get into the copper deal, which we can talk about later. Um, because of them being non toxic or because of the lead is because that bullet goes through, it holds together and it'll go through that front. It'll go all the way through the other side. You know, it'll, it'll go all the way through their side. That is crucial, man. I, I can't, I can't express how important it is to have a really good bullet. And, you know, rifles are finicky. And, 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 and the problem with the bullet is, is their copper bullets are expensive, you know, and, and now I've, I've moved to the LRX with Barnes uh, for a more long range type of bullet. So as they get better, I think, and less expensive, maybe more people will use them. But I really encourage that. Not only that for, for penetration wise, um, but for um, the environment too. And I guess we can talk about more about that later too. Yeah. When we get, we get towards uh wrap it up, I think we're, we're definitely going to hit on that scavenger study and, and, uh, you know, listeners, if they haven't tuned in before, my very first podcast was all about lead free ammunition and big believer in it. And, and I shot my Oryx one shot with a, uh, a Nosler E-tip 180 grain out of my 300 wind mag from, I think 180 yards. And I was ready to follow up right on it, but as soon as I shot, she was gone, and I came up over the hill, and she was she was there. And maybe I'll tell that story in a little bit, but can't emphasize enough the the bullet construction and, and using copper just to have that that retention of weight. Absolutely worth it, Gilbert. You are the historian when it comes to oryx in in the southwest part of our country, and you've collected the history. You were telling me about some of the telegrams and things that people were using to get the oryx over here some of those those methods so can you bring us all the way back to the very beginning when they left africa and came to the states yeah man i think it's a, an awesome story a lot of a lot of i think people don't really know the history of how ginsbuck the south african oryx got here um but we have to go 10 years before their introduction to to mountain sheep Back in the day, in the late 40s, the department was really trying to establish their desert bighorn sheep and uh, Rocky Rocky Mountain sheep program, and were failing. It just wasn't working for whatever reasons. I don't know why the details um, they couldn't establish 
or, or grow their bighorn sheep at the time. So the department was really looking for a substitute. And they were reaching out and they had some South Central ranchers recommend mountain sheep that they were they were drought resistant sheep. And it would be something the department would look into. So they did. And so basically what happened, these mountain sheep were actually Audad. Um, there were some private high fences in uh, Picacho, New Mexico, the Hondo Valley area in South Central New Mexico. Um, it was called McKnight Ranch. And uh, they had him on there um, and they said, man, this is this is the, the sheep you want. These guys will survive. These guys are prolific. We don't water them. We don't feed them. You know, they, they're just great. The department at that time decided by 1950, they brought in over 57 sheep and released them into the Canadian uh, River Canyon area of Northeast New Mexico. And it was successful for so for five years, they had them and they hunted them. Um, they did research on them. By 1955, the, actually, the state of Mexico made them a legal big game animal. And it was because of that introduction that these animals were not endangering native wildlife, that they were not being an issue to ranchers. Keep in mind, there are 57 animals, <laughs> you know, um, and so the effects were not really um, facts. So they thought it was, hey, these guys, you just let them go and they breed and they provide a good hunting opportunity. So that started a wave. So by early 1960s, uh, the department was actually looking at creating an official exotic introduction program solely for the purpose of providing new hunting opportunities. And in doing so, there was a new commissioner, uh, uh, chairman that uh, came in that was appointed, uh, chairman, uh, Dr. Frank Hibbins, who was an African, avid African hunter. And uh, he came to New Mexico and saw all this vast desert that he felt wasn't being utilized. The department felt that non-game species were not uh, taking advantage of these creosote mesquite dune uh, type habitats. And um, they wanted uh, hunting opportunities. They wanted to establish non, uh, non-native non species in these areas where non-game, not for our native wildlife, weren't uh, taken advantage of. And that was the sole purpose, is to establish these populations for hunting in habitats and terrain that weren't suitable for native game species. And that's their thought process then. You know, we all know now that those ecosystems were being taken advantage of and and those animals do utilize those those areas as well so back then though biology and where they were at wasn't there you know so that was their sole purpose uh in his travels he started researching you know what animals would be best fit for here and um he started looking and they considered the greater kudu Siberian ibex the Persian ibex and of course, Gimsbach, which is the South African oryx, and then later on the Persian gazelle, as well. And so the problem at that time was is that uh, Hibbins reached out to local uh, zoological parks uh, and some private ranches in Texas if they had any of these animals available to him that he could purchase, because he had purchased those Barbary for pronghorn. They actually didn't purchase them; he switched them out. They gave him pronghorn for Barbary. Uh, and then he got the rest, they got the rest of the Barbary from a ranch in uh, California. Because he didn't have a source 
in North America, he had to go out to South Africa and get these dealers, these uh, um, safari dealers, uh, to produce his kudu and all these animals that he wanted to bring in. And he was able to do it. The only problem was that there were restrictions with the United States Department of Agriculture that required a wild hoofed ungulates to be shipped. The U.S. had to be quarantined uh, in the original place for 60 days. And then they had to be quarantined in their destination where they were going to be for 30 days and all certified uh, disease free at that time. And then after that, the other stipulation was is that they had to be confined to an approved zoo and they were supposed to remain there the rest of their lives. So all the animals were sent to the Albuquerque Zoo and only their offspring were legally allowed to be released into the wild. Um, and so a lot of people don't know that. People just think that they came from Africa, they unloaded the, the truck and they just let them off on white sands. When they came to the zoo and the offspring was released, they actually sent them to a breeding facility. Uh, New Mexico Department of Game and Fish has a Red Rock breeding facility where they started their bighorn sheep programs and turned that pasture into basically an exotic pasture where they kept them fenced and they bred them. Um, and they were funded very well. The department did not do this all by themselves. Uh, they had hunting clubs. The Shikar Safari Club and the Southern California Safari Club and other private donors raised $65,000 in the support of that program to bring them there and to be able to, to get that program going. So they had all these animals here in this breeding facility, and we know that Kudu did not get established. That would have been pretty cool. Um, but uh, they did not get established. There's very little information about what happened to uh, the kudu, other than that in the breeding facility, the male that, that got there died immediately, and then the female died that, that following winter. Um, but there's some scandal stuff going on. You know, there's reports, actually, the governor of, of uh, New Mexico at the time, Bruce King, uh, organized an advisory exotic task force to probe on the financial dealings of the of the program because there was accusations that the department sold off the kudu uh, and never got a chance to release them into the wild. And by 1981, that dissolved and no one knows what happened. You know, there's no record. There's no, no one knows whatever happened to that, to those kudu other than that. They, they definitely did not make it through the winters, but there was obviously more kudu at the zoo um, that belonged to the state. I don't know the whole stories, but they never got established. Was there any initial opposition to bringing in all these exotics to New Mexico? Yeah, you know, there there were. But that was later on once they figured out that they were going to go to White Sands Missile Range. Uh, once they were going to, once they did their studies there at the Red Rock facility and the orcs were going to be successful, there and and they talked about finding locations to set them out in a bigger enclosure, a bigger place to study them. Um, then that opposition did come in later, which we can talk about later too. So White Sands was chosen because there's two million acres and they're all fenced in, and this will be a convenient little place to study. The main reason why there was one chosen one, it was a closed installation. So they would be allowed to be do research there that would be undisturbed, away from poachers, 
Um, not people not have a lot of access to them. And second, there's no cattle. There's no cattle there. So they didn't have to worry about disease transmission. They didn't have to worry about um, competition with ranchers. And so there was a memorandum of understanding that was, took place between a contract between the state, a five-year contract uh, agreement between uh, White Sands Missile Range and the department on the guidelines and rules of how that research was going to be conducted. It's amazing that there is all of this early on intrigue happening just to bring Oryx over oh, to, yeah. to New Mexico. And and if right. you were to Google up Oryx in New Mexico, you're not going to find any of this, Gilbert. No. Where, where no. did you find out all of this information? Well, you know what? And like I said, man, I, the, the leading expert in New Mexico is probably Patrick Morrow. And I, I deal with him on a daily basis. And just through the years, he's been able to just, you know, just learn through being with around him. And then my partner, Doug Burkett, like I said, together they have over 60 years of experience. Um, and so I've just been fortunate to be around these guys. And then also um, going back to uh, the literature, you know, that we've had that I read when I first started and never got back to, to fresh up on all that stuff. And and so, yeah, it's it just a, it's crazy how that first part of it. And that's really not the end of the, the story. You know, they, if you think about that, that breeding facility did is that they flourished so well and they got to study, but they still didn't know nothing about them. They didn't, there was such a captive situation. They didn't know exactly what their, their sex ratio, they didn't know their, their growth potential. They didn't know uh, the disease transmission. They didn't know anything. They didn't really didn't know anything. What they did get out of the breeding facility was is that they could breed. To breed and 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 they didn't know how they're going to deal with predators. They didn't know how anything like that. Um, but that is one of the success stories um, that they did at that breeding facility. The Siberian ibex actually had difficult times breeding. They actually did release them, and the last known harvest was in 1985, and they released them in the same areas that they did the Bar- Barbary sheep. But as we talked earlier, the Persian ibex is a, the other exotic successful story where they released 15 Ibex in the Floridas in the 1970s. And, you know, and now we have a huntable population uh, since then. But back to the Oryx, um, it all started in the zoo uh, with two males and six females. And they arrived there in 1963. And the first birth there at the zoo was in 1964. And then the Red Rock didn't get their first two Oryx until 1965. Um, at that breeding facility. Um, and then like we discussed, you talked about um, White Sands Missions, how they selected that. And it was basically because of that, you know, no cattle, um, that they felt that there was no species that native species that were taking advantage of these desert ecosystems. Um, and it was a closed installation. So that was where it started there. And the objections were, was the White Sands National Monument you know, it was right there. The Gypsum Dunes, it's historical uh, national significance as far as the dunes. Um, and uh, it's a great place to go see just miles and miles of white Gypsum Dunes. And um, the monument was worried about works going on to to the monument and destroying the flora and the fauna that was native there. Um, they actually, in the 90s, actually built a $1 million fence um, to keep works out. The state of Arizona. Arizona was very worried 
that these islands would expand because no one knew what their dispersal was. They didn't know how far they would go. You know, information was just so limited at that time. Um, so there were worries. Ranchers were worried about their cattle uh, that were outside the missile range and so forth. So that five-year uh, um, memorandum of understanding was that there was to be an enclosure. Um, that enclosure uh, uh was to be nine sections, which is roughly about 5,700 acres. Um, that enclosure was going to be a larger enclosure in habitat that they would be released in uh, or possibly released. Um, and uh, all these objections that they had, you know, the sex ratios, the growth potential, the departments, the, the way the department eased the situation with everyone, with those who objected to is that, you know what? If this doesn't work out, we can always control the population or we can eliminate the population. If there's issues with native wildlife, we can just get rid of them. Um, this is still in the research part of the phase. And um, that nine section fence enclosure was actually going to be the new study area. But due to funding, this this enclosure was not game proof like the Red Rock facility. It was a five strand barbed wire fence. And so... Uh, in October of 1969, seven oryx were released into this study area, this enclosure. I don't call it an enclosure, but this fenced area. And from 69 to 73, a total of 93 oryx were released into the creosote mesquite brushlands of White Sands Missile Range, uh, either directly from the zoo or from the Red Rock Breeding Facility. And it was during that time, it was immediately obvious that this fence was not holding them. They immediately go through the fence, back and forth through the fence. And so it was done. <laughs> these, guys, these guys were released. They weren't no longer as predicted uh, in that in agreement that they would be in there. They, you know, funding made this enclosure so much not able. It was it just wasn't an enclosure. It was just a fence. Yeah, I, I can't imagine somebody looked at an oryx which is the size of an elk and looked at a five strand bob wire fence standing four or five feet tall and thought, yeah, that's good enough. We're going to be okay. But the fence surrounding white sands missile range is what 10 feet high and surrounded by barbed wire, razor wire on top or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's solid. That keeps them in. Well, no, not really, man. Um, the, the white sands missile range boundary, man, it's 2.2 million acres. It is not, it's not only secure sites and UXO areas and stuff like that actually to, that, that need to protect sensitive sites actually have, you know, the fencing you're, you're describing. Our boundary is basically a five bar, bar, five strands of barbed wire fence. You know, and, you know, we can cross me and you can cross it all day and we have trespassers. We do have poaching, uh, occur on White Sands Missile Range. The whole installation is not secured in a 10 foot wall all the way around it at, by any means. At what point did they just say, okay, they threw their hands up and said, we've got oryx now. We're not going to be able to corral them or find them or do anything. Yeah. They're just, they're here to stay. What, when did they call that? Well, they were studying them, right? So in the 1970s and 69, 70, when they, they that's the whole purpose was, is to move them from, from the, Red Rock breeding facility to an area that where they could actually study them and get all the answers, all the, all the questions they had answered. Right. And um, that nine section study area, which is very large, turned into 
250 sections, roughly 160,000 acres. You know, that was their study area at that point because that's how far they had moved out. Um, and 160,000 acres sounds like a lot, but, you know, the, the Rose Canyon hunt area is 470,000 acres. We're talking huge, vast areas of, of land. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, so things changed, you know, and, and once they were out, they're out, you know, and, and the biologists at the time calculated by the year 2000, the population would reach about 402 animals. Well, in 2000, we harvested 659 animals alone and estimated the population to be about 3,500 animals. So it was grossly underestimated the growth potential, obviously. And, and of course, by 1974, we had five tags and Susie Judds was the first hunter to, uh, to harvest an animal. And you, you talked about that early in the podcast. Um, and that's their story, man, is, is that they had a a situation where they were just not brought in from Africa. You know, they had so many unanswered questions, but it was solely for honey. They kind of put aside all the questions and environmental impacts and tried, they did really truly try to find um, answers. But uh, when they did, they just didn't have the right enclosure uh, to figure all that out. And to, to this day, we still, there's some things we still don't know um in in today's world um but lou bender is probably the leading researcher out of new mexico state university uh, university um that's done ex a lot of research in in the 2000 late 90s 2000s about oryx regarding productivity uh reproduction um disbursements uh disease all that stuff so uh, we know a lot now but there's still some things we still don't know about what we do know about them is that they are the perfect desert animal um, this, their abilities to conserve water, their techniques that, that they use to, to survive. Um, and then they have no natural predators. There's nothing an adult oryx, um, is afraid of, um, other than humans. Um, you know, coyotes do, do take uh, calves and mountain lions do, can take calves, uh, and, and some, some sub adults. But once they get to adult, there's nothing, you know, uh, even in Africa and the Kalahari game preserves over there, um, the survival rate is 5% uh, once they get to adult. Uh, in New Mexico, uh, in the, they colored 100 oryx in 2001, and um, the survival rate was 1.3%. Only 1.3% deceit were, were, had a mortality rate of 1.3%. Um, and <clears throat> they believe those few that did, that did die were due to old uh, uh, hunting wounds. Um, cause hunters weren't allowed to shoot colored orcs at that time during that study, but it did happen. And, uh, by the time they got to those carcasses, they couldn't really determine the, the death, but not one had ever been, uh, preyed upon or anything. So their survival rate, once they get to adulthood is pretty much <laughs> close to a hundred percent. Is has there been any calls recently to really reduce the population or even eliminate it and, and get back to the, the, the native flora and fauna and maybe restore some of that uh, essence that was there before orcs were introduced? Sure. You know, you always have that, you know, we have an obligation to protect our native fauna, right? And, uh, and there's always that, always that concern. Um, and that is the main reason we have to keep that population down. 
you know, uh, and uh, so that we can avoid the environmental impacts that they do to the habitat, you know, through overgrazing, because they're mainly grass eaters, um, they're grazers, you know. Um, so it's it's a situation where you've got to keep that in play. <clears throat> you know, in the, the late 1990s, as the population was increasing, at the time they thought it was three to 4,000, but there's still a lot of things we didn't know with sightability. Uh, surveys were conducted after that point. We probably had five to 6,000 animals. And at the same time, mule deer populations were decreasing. So that brought out a lot of research that um, researchers were doing to find out, is there a correlation between this? You know, because we had desert bighorn sheep and we're trying to, uh, uh, they still weren't delisted yet. They didn't get delisted till 2011. Um, Basically, could there be some transmission disease transmission issues or competition issues that we didn't know about? Um, and because it never was discovered, you know, they never really had the research. And it was not to them the early 2000s that people really started trying to figure that out. Um, and um, there are, you know, deer, deer are, are, are browsers and they do eat grass. They kind of flip flop. So habitat wise, they're kind of on the opposite spe- spectrums, but they do share, they do share um, some habitat. They do share um, the landscape and there is interaction, uh, especially when drought conditions are, are available. Uh, they will obviously really compete for, for grass and, and, and uh, shrubs. So there are issues there's competition when things get tough, um, but that's the reason why we have to maintain that population to a level where it still provides a hunting opportunity, but not only just doesn't affect the environment um, but and, and, the, and the wildlife, but also the mission. Um, you know, back in the day when we, we had high numbers of oryx, we were having 35 to 40 traffic accidents a year. Um, which is huge. Um, it was a big problem. You know, we used to call uh, Range Road 7, uh, which is a, a big stretch of highway that connects the north and south, the gauntlet. Um, you know, it was just, you just, you, it, you were sure to hit one. I never hit an Oryx uh, to, to this year. Uh, January of, of 2002, I hit my first Oryx, caused $10,000 of damage into my truck. Um, and I, I couldn't believe I hit, I knew when I saw him, I was going to hit him. Um, and I've dodged him for a long time. I can't, I can't tell you how many orcs, but, um, I've dodged, but it, it happens. And that is, is a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal for safety. So, uh, and, and then impact on the range, you know, missions, um, they get into everything. They can get it. They get into the canvas. They get into, to weather stations. They get into, uh, everything they go through fence uh and that's a big deal because they get through they break through the fence and orcs don't jump over a fence uh orcs go through fences um they 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 just go through them they go under them they they find a way and the problem with that is is that they open the fence up and then we get cattle on range and then we got to get the cattle off so um there's actually uh patrick has one uh contractor that's all he does is per is fixed fence from erosion, uh, uh, from orcs fencing crossings, um, just to keep cattle off the range. Um, so, um, yeah, those guys, those guys are, can be a mess, uh, if, if they get overpopulated. And so it's the best interest of White Sands Missile Range 
to keep the population as low as we can, as 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 low as we can, but also provide a good hunting opportunity. But it's very difficult. I know Patrick is as many years as he has, uh, and the department they they actually get together every year, look at survey numbers after uh, flying, and determine what's the best course of action. But their probably biggest weakest weakness is is uh, a deep freeze. 2011, we had a huge deep freeze, and we basically had no no reproduction that year. So what happens is that it's, it was so cold that their horns, uh, bone their their uh, bone cores and their their horns freeze. So we had about a 65 percent of our animals lost their horns. Their ears froze off. Their tails froze off. Um, there was like four or five days of multiple below zero temperatures. And so in that, in February, which most of those orcs should uh, were actually pregnant because they, they have in early spring basically aborted. So when, they, when Patrick put that in the model, it showed at the rate that we were going to harvest, we were going to basically crash that population um, within a five-year t- time frame. And so we reacted, we got with the department, hey, this is not good. Um, we're looked at, this is what we're having at a loss. This is what we projected things are going to happen. We agreed, we recorded, we cut t- uh, tags in half for four years. And with four, and within four years, they exploded, man. They just skyrocketed. You know, they did have a slow year, uh, but by within four years, they recovered. We were behind the eight ball again. So it's very difficult to keep ahead of them. Um, and you combine that with the fact is that we're on a active uh, military testing range. We just don't have free range to have hunts whenever we want. Patrick and the, our division environmental chief, Brian Knight, they all work really hard to make sure that uh, we get time. Because time that we have for hunting, White Sands Missile Range is losing revenue for not having testing. Um, huge. We're talking millions and millions, maybe billions of dollars of testing time that we're taking away from uh, the federal government from testing. It's a huge deal. And a lot of people don't realize that is that we're out there. It's, it is, is a closed installation. And we've given the opportunity to go out there and hunt uh, to do something we love and also manage this population because there's no other way to manage them is by hunting. And it's it's just an incredible, incredible opportunity for people to go out there. And I don't think people realize what man, White Sands managers do to keep that available to us and the department. The department is also works with us. Um, they provide support as well. Um, physical security provides game wardens. And I have a, 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 a extraordinary helpful partner, uh, uh, admin assistant that deals with a lot of the background paperwork, the background checks and so forth. And we can talk about that, but we just have an extraordinary opportunity. Um, and the animal, the, 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 the army does not want to get rid of Oryx. That's another myth. Oh, you guys are just trying, when we start, ha- start putting more hunts and tags, you guys are just trying to get rid of the Oryx. That is not, that's far from the truth. Orcs are are part of the landscape now. We just need to minimize it to a level where we can still provide good quality hunting opportunity and still allowing mission operation and try to reduce the effect of the of the 
native species get affected um, habitat-wise. What's the current population on the on Wismer? We think we're about 3,500, 3,000, 3,500 right now. And then off-range, yeah. do you know how many there might be? We don't because they don't survey. So a part of that, a part of 2000, my, my partner, Doug Burkett, was tasked to do a, or a comprehensive orcs management plan. Got all the agencies involved to try to get um, the Holloman Air Force Base, the Hornada, the, the, um, uh, the White Sands Monument, the state agencies, Fort Bliss, all on the same page on how are we going to manage orcs. And in the 2000, it was to manage not to have to reduce off-range orc presence to close to zero. Um, and um, we know that today that that's not right. Um, what actually happens now, actually off-range tags equal, we have, we have on-range. They have over about a thousand tags that they issue off-range and that we issue on-range. And so the population has just, it, I'm telling you, they're prolific. They can they can breed, and so the largest private holding is the Armadares Ranch, and they have a set of, a, a good population of oryx. McGregor now on Fort Bliss has a good uh, about 400 head of oryx on it as well. Um, but these animals go off range. Well, they did the telemetry work at that time. Uh, about 12 percent of the animals were leaving the range at, at that current population level. Um, I don't know how many leave now, but I can tell you that the, that there's enough where the off-range uh, population is huntable. You know, their success rate is in the high 60s, uh, uh, I believe. Um, and, um, and so they're, they're trying to make sure that they're contained as well. But it's tough, man. You just – they're unbelievable. That's 60% <laughs> success rate. That's off-range. Is that for broken horn? It's like – yeah, no, no, that's off range. It's like 65%, close to 70% some years, um, on that off range hunt. It is a very tough hunt. Uh, the success on that hunt is going to be due to time in the field. You need seven to eight days, about 2000 miles of driving and you'll, you'll be successful. Just amount of being able to catch them crossing back and forth. Um, it's a long, long hunt. Um, but if people have the time and it's a month long, the off, off, the off range hunts are a month long. Um, so if you have the time and you, you have the will, uh, you can get it done. And which is a, a crazy opportunity for anybody to go do that. Do you know what the draw rates are for the off range for both that full tag and then the broken horn tag as well? You mean the, as the, the draw success rates? Yeah. Yeah, so the once in a lifetime you're looking at anywhere from three to six percent draw success, um, and the off range I never really looked at the off range uh, draw success to be honest with you, but the on range hunts um, are anywhere between three to six percent is that's what you're looking for. Looking okay, at. it's a very very small <laughs> percent. So you're very fortunate to have drawn the tag, and that's for the general. Just uh, everybody's eligible for for these both on range and off range hunts, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you have special hunts that you guys offer at on Wismer for um for certain class groups like kids, uh veterans, uh Iraq, Afghanistan vets, uh those kinds of hunts, right? 
Yeah, for sure. So we do we do have a, a returning Iraq Iraq Afghanistan hunt. We have uh, veterans of New Mexico that come in that that were in those in those operations um, as well. Mobility impaired hunters, uh, youth hunters, and then broken horn hunters. Um, the broken horn hunt was just a uh, is a hunt for an opportunity for people to come and that have already had their once in a lifetime uh, to come harvest the norx, but it has no management significance. As a matter of fact, it probably hurts our our um, our goals because the success rate on the broken horn hunts is about sixty percent because they're they're confined to trying to find a broken horn, and that can be a very difficult. You know, the success is still pretty high considering, but, uh, considering, but it still kind of can be a difficult hunt, uh, trying to isolate a broken horn, uh, out of the herd and stuff. And that, for that draw for the uh, once in a lifetime, you go through, uh, New Mexico fishing game. Again, anybody's eligible for that. For those special hunts, which is what I was a part of, the returning Iraq vet, um, hunts, those, you still go through fishing game, but they're they're at a totally different draw time than the other hunts. They usually occur, I think, June, July in that time frame. So you really got to watch for when that press release comes out from New Mexico fishing game to apply for those. So that that hunt you're talking about right there. So the the returning Iraq Afghan resident veteran hunt is actually part of the normal draw process uh, with the New Mexico Department of Game. So once in a lifetime, the youth mobility broken horn, the Iraq Afghanistan, and then we have off range hunts. We also have McGregor hunts, private land hunts, and then population reduction hunts. The hunt that you're talking about that comes out in July and June is was. Uh, designated in um, uh, for wounded warriors, and that turned into uh, injured service members, injured active and injured service member veterans that were were injured. And that is you're right, a, a special hunt that comes out in June, July. They send out an email notification, um, and that is specifically for those injured uh, service members. So yeah, that one is a special hunt that's outside of the normal draw process. I, I just, I guess, I would recommend people look at the New Mexico Fishing Game website if they're really interested in in finding uh, what they need to do to draw and get into that process. But once you have drawn that tag, it's it's a pretty magical time. I remember when that the game warden called me, and I see on my on my caller ID it says New Mexico Fishing Game, and so I pick up the phone and. This gentleman says, you know, this is a uh, game warden so-and-so. And I said, oh, what can I do for the state of New Mexico? And thinking that, I mean, I've never hunted New Mexico yet, but I've bought tags and I've applied. And and I'm wondering, like, what's going through my mind about what could possibly he be calling me about? And he said, I'd like to inform you that you drew the this Oryx tag for White Sand Mince Range. And I said, are you kidding me? And, and, yeah. and I felt like it was that classic prank that somebody was pulling on me that, cause I've, I've never drawn like a real glory tag before, but when I drew this one, I, I mean, everything else that was happening that fall was, it was put on hold. I was going to New Mexico and I was going to chase orcs and, and it started this process that is really actually involved that to get on white sands missile range, you have to do all this, this paperwork and fill out all this and it's worth it. But Gilbert, what do people have to do to get on the range? Well, the first thing is, is they obviously have to apply with the Department of Game and Fish. They need to go and set up an account. 
And then the deadline for application to put in for us is usually that March uh, 26th timeframe. Um, that third week in March is usually the deadline. It changes a day or two. That's usually the time. So by March, by January, February, you want to start going to the website. You can start applying usually by mid-January. And uh, most of the time, that work section is page 100 to 103, and it has a list of all the available hunts that you can apply for uh, and the hunt codes with different dates and times. Uh, we have around 10 hunts right now that you can apply for with, uh, with different dates. And that's going to be your first thing. And the second thing is, is then you wait for the draw, <laughs> you know, and you sit there and wait and you wait and you wait. And then you find out if you draw, if you are successful, you'll get a notification from the Department of Game and Fish. And then about a week or two, you'll get an email from me. And then from there, uh, you'll get a, uh, a hunt packet via email that will give you all the guidelines of what the do's and don'ts are. You know, some orange, orange vest, how many guests you can bring. You can bring up to three guests. And then everyone does have to pass a background check. That background check, you know, if there's any in the hunt party that has an active violent felony, um, is usually a red flag. Um, but it's not always um, an end. But um, the security, physical security will then determine who is going to be eligible to get on range. Um, and then so you, there's a deadline to submit that. And then there's an access fee that needs to be submitted as well. So um, it's about $150, uh, $160 for the Game of Fish for their license. And then you pay an access fee for White Sands Miss Range. And that is collected under the Sykes Act. Uh, and that Sykes Act money is for wildlife. So that money that you goes to to us is not for us for me, it is actually goes back into wildlife water units. It goes into surveying. It goes back into the wildlife. Uh, and so I want to make sure a lot of people don't know why well, I'd already paid my 150. Like, no, well, you still got to pay your Wismer access fee. Um, and it's, it's the sole purpose to put back into the wildlife. And I can tell you that the amount that we collect is way is not enough, but uh, it, it, it definitely does help. And then at that point, because like you mentioned, there is very little information out there and a lot of people rely on forums and that's always not good. A lot of people, oh, they said it was going to be easy. They said that they said this and they said that. And, I, and so I took upon myself and you and you, I've sent probably 30, 40 emails throughout that entire period trying to build up to that moment. Just some more information, how to judge them, what to watch out for, what shop placement, you know, uh, habitat, um, and then interesting facts about them, their biology, because uh, their biology is just a remarkable how the techniques they use to survive in the stairs and environment with basically no permanent water. And so I try to educate everyone uh, in, in in that because I know the information that's out there is not there. And, you know, and you're probably only the one first podcast that's actually dealt with them to this depth, be honest with you. And so uh, we keep that that communication going. I try to keep in communication with you guys on, on, on a weekly basis or, or at least at least twice a week to make sure we're all on the same page. And then as the hunt gets closer, I provide information regarding success rates in your hunt area. And then the day of the hunt, you show up on Friday morning, usually about 10 a.m. Want to make sure that obviously there's no video recording. We don't allow no video recording. You want to make sure your scope prior to that does not have video capabilities. 
Um, and uh, your vehicle gets searched. Uh, make sure there's no alcohol. There's no any illegal items in your vehicle. Um, and then you'll get screened through and you'll be put in a parking lot um, that takes there some time to get everybody through and screened. Uh, you'll register your weapons, your vehicle, all your guests will be checked. And then when everybody's ready, uh, we will have a safety briefing. And that safety briefing now due to COVID is done over. We don't we used to have bail. Everyone used to bail out into a big old pile and we'd have big speakers and, and everybody would stand around. And that all changed. COVID changed that. So we do it in the vehicle through the radio, the FM radio station. And it turns out that everybody loved that. Everybody could adjust their volume. You know, kids could stay in the truck. Mobility impairs could stay in the truck. And so we probably going to keep that. Um, they, people like to be in the air conditioner and, and stuff like that. So I have the safety briefing. We go over the hump boundaries. We go over the closed areas, uh, what your expectations is. You were required to check in and check out at a certain time and then uh, and provided emergency contact information. And then that point, you're released. And then Saturday, you come in the order. We release you the, the order that you came in and the same thing for Sunday. And so um, it's a great opportunity. And these hunts really have an opportunity to provide hunting at different levels. So you can road hunt and you can spawn stock. But that's the preferred, actually the only way really, but um, to really get them. But um, as far as hunter experience, there's, there's, it's there for everyone. For the youth, because there's a, the the population's enough to where you can take advantage at different levels, you know. So if some serious hunter wants to get out and do some serious hunting, they can go out to some remote areas and get it done and put in the seven miles. Or if there's someone that's new and doesn't know, not very comfortable what they're doing, they can drive around and still harvest an animal, you know, um, and get an opportunity and get an experience. So I got to tell you, I showed up at the gate about 8 a.m. and I felt like I was late. There was already uh, <laughs> probably 40 trucks in front of me waiting to to get in. And so we all park. And of course, you know, we're all there for the same reason. We're just kind of starting to, to, where are you from? What are you doing? You know, are you excited? What are you looking for? And just having some really cool conversations and meeting people. Most of them were locals that I saw. Uh, there was a couple, uh, I think one was Wyoming, one was Colorado. So, you know, not coming from real far distances the lead up into getting onto the base is not a joke and, and filing all that paperwork. Uh, do you still require serial numbers for rifles to be submitted to? Yes. Yeah. I yeah. had to do that and I didn't bring a backup weapon and I usually do have a backup rifle with me, but I just, when I filled out the paperwork, I, I, I don't know if there was a spot for it or not, or if I forgot, but I didn't. So I left my backup weapon back in my hotel room where I had stayed the night before. And you know, you just, the the vehicle search, uh, you know, mine was during COVID, so it wasn't as thorough as I've heard other guys, I guess, kind of go through. But they they still get you know opened all my doors, looked through everything, looking for uh, alcohol was definitely a big one, and then any other firearms. And uh, I think they asked me about like uh, pyrotechnics or fireworks or something like that. So they were they were they were diligent, and and so I encourage those that that go to to Wismer to go hunt these orcs at. Um, take very seriously everything uh, about the trip from the very beginning of the paperwork through the entirety of the hunt, because for a lot of guys, it is once in a lifetime and you do not want to be that guy that just messes things up for yourself or for other people. Right. During that safety briefing, 
the big thing that they said that I remembered was if you didn't drop it, you don't pick it up. And that is the hard and fast rule there at, uh, at White Sands Missile Range. And they had told us this uh, about a guy, maybe it was you over the intercom, uh, over the radio, that just the year before, somebody had snuck in trying to look for what you called UXO, unexploded ordnance, and they they ended up uh, picking up the wrong thing and dying from it. So there's there's a reality to being on the range that you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time and have a very, very bad thing happen to you. That situation right there was actually happened on McGregor. Um, that situation was where, where there's also a, it also is a maneuver military base uh, installation. And so what happened was that they had trespassers that went in collecting metal and they actually picked up the wrong stuff. The two, two individuals were injured very, very bad, badly. There is, um, there was, that was that situation there where these individuals went trespassed on to a testing facility and picked up the wrong stuff. Why, and we've been fortunate in White Sands Missile Range. We have never had an injury uh, regarding UXO with with a hunter. Um, an airman did die in, in a situation where a UXO was involved. But for the most part, we've not had, thank God, we've never had a situation. And I think that's because hunters do take it serious when we talk about UXO. And we do a very good job to put big buffers around these UXO areas so that the public is safe um, and, and the public doesn't have to uh, worry about that they're going to be in a, a hazardous situation. We never do that. But we always have to treat everything as it's a, a UXO. It's plastic, metallic in nature. We're always on range. Even me, I may not be even close to a UXO area, but if I see something that looks like shiny i don't i'm not even messing with it i'm not even looking at it i don't even want to let my eyeballs look at it i'm just like you know what i'm going around and you see it all the time um so um just because they're not in a uxo area doesn't mean it's it's not dangerous you know so uh we really we really push that if you didn't get it come out of your pocket you don't pick it up you know and you don't kick it you don't do anything you know um and and then Hunters do their part too. When they see ordinances out there, they GPS it and they bring it to us. And then we go out and we send UXO teams out there and then they clear up the area. So hunters do their part to clean it up for future hunters. And uh, we do a good job. Um, it's not, not to say that we haven't had injuries, but that's usually hunter induced uh, caused injuries. The map you give us, we have to give back when we're done. And I don't know if that's because it's a there's a classified portion of it or something like that, but we have to mark on that map where we harvest our uh, or oryx, and then we give that back to you. But on that map, there are big red areas, and when you drive past them, you've got flagging, you've got tape, you've got signs, and it is very very obvious. This is a place that you don't go, and, and so I don't want people to think that they're going to be stepping on landmines anywhere they go out there, but. There's a reality that it's an active test site, which is a really cool element that I don't think you're going to get in any other hunt anywhere else in the world. Maybe, you know, I don't even want to say outside of North Korea, but I, I don't know where you could go to find that kind of experience if you were looking for it. But at Wismer, there's a reality there that I, I thought was really cool, but there is still enormous amounts of areas to go and, and to explore and find these these oryx and, um, and, and have, like you said, the hunt that you were that you're looking for and you have incredibly high success rates. I think that's partly because you have so many oryx, but you also have the right amount of hunters. 
And I was really concerned because I'm as a non-resident, I'm paying the was it like sixteen hundred dollars for the tag? Yeah, not the yeah. the one sixty. So I mean, there's real money for me that's invested in in the experience, and and you want to make sure that you're you're going to be able to have what you're looking for, right? But um, I'm kind of kind of rambling here for a moment, though, Gilbert. What strategies do you find to be the most successful for people who who get a tag on on White Sands? I think that the first thing that hunters need to do is that they need to really understand where they're at with their hunting capability. You need to hunt within your 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 capability. If you have some mobility impairments or if you're new, you know, hunt in that. Um, there's such a high expectation when you get a once in a lifetime tag. Um, sometimes I think people lose their minds. You know, I've seen crazy things. Um, and it's just like, wow, you know, and I try to set my back. Okay. What would I be if I was them, if I was new or if I didn't know? Um, and, and it's just to hunt within your capabilities. If you can't shoot 300 yards, don't shoot 300 yards. You know, um, if you, if you, if you're not in condition to hike three miles, don't put yourself through that. You know, um, we have, we have situations where people put themselves because of the pressure, um, and it's a small portion, but you know, that put themselves in situations where through heat exhaustion, through, um, not be able to navigate a GPS, um, some, I don't even know how people, sometimes people get to the gate, you know, they, you know, it's just like, they don't even know where they harvest the animal, you know, and it's just like, show me on the map. And the reason why you had to turn in your map was because of COVID. Um, is uh, just marking the map. We don't have, we don't want to have to spend a lot of exposure to you. Just give it, mark it on the map and then give it to us and then we can take it. So we normally do not collect the maps. It was just during, during COVID to kind of reduce the interaction, um, at that, at that time. Um, but just hunt it within your capabilities, you know, be honest with yourself, make, prepare the best you can, learn as much as you can. And that's why I try to send out a lot of information. Um, and hunt within those capabilities and then, in a, and understand that your best way to hunt these guys is going to be, you know, everybody's like, well, where are the orcs? Where are the orcs? Um, and, um, th- honestly, they move tremendous. They move all the time. There's hot spots where they like to be, but they can be anywhere. Um, they really, really, really do move, uh, constantly moving. And so, um, you're, you're going to have to have good, glass you get a good set of binos 10 by 50 10 you know power or higher is going to be key in these desert environments you have to have a good range finder um because the landscape is so deceptive as far as the ranges because it's flat there's grass there's all this brush and and be honest i have a 800 range finder and sometimes they don't even work the heat the the heat waves the the terrain it's just like how can i glass how can i not catch you know and it just situations where you just be equipped a good binos a good range finder and then be have an intimate relationship with your rifle you got to know what that rifle's doing you know you got to know uh where you're hitting and 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 practice people grab their most people grab their rifle Go to the range. Okay, it's on, and then that's it. Practice off shooting sticks. You're not going to be shooting shooting uh, prone in this country most of the time. You're not going to be able to do it. You're shooting from a standing or a sitting position, and that means shooting sticks. 
So you practice off those shooting sticks. You make sure that you're shooting at the distances that you're capable of hitting a vital shot on, and you're sitting there and you're practicing off those. You know, even if it's in your living room, dry firing, wherever you can do it, you need to do it because there's nothing more depressing to see is someone that had several opportunities and wounded an animal or two um, or three, and they leave, you know, disappointed, you know, because they had an opportunity and it let a game on. And, you know, and there's people that don't harvest an animal that are, are perfectly fine in that. And they're happy with their experience. But when you shoot one and you're not be able to treat it, it's, it's demoralizing. And, and it's just basically because of lack of preparation, you know, so spot and stock by glassing is going to be their key. And if I had another key would be is to make sure you select your guests properly. Make sure you have uh, people that with you that can be uh, help to you. One, taking the animal out because you are allowed to drive off road to retrieve the animal. But there's times where you physically can't get a vehicle to them and you will have to quarter that animal out. And a lot of people weren't prepared for that. So uh, make sure that your group that you're bringing is going to be able to help you in that effort. And second, someone that you can communicate well with. Uh, sometimes your stocks can be up to a mile long um, and those animals move and you're going to need some, a spotter. You're going to need someone. If most people are successful, they have a successful spotter um, that can walk them in uh, via radio or through hand signals uh, to get you in the best position because these animals can see for miles, miles and miles. Um, they're just a giant pronghorn and everybody knows how good pronghorn eyesight is. Uh, well, now they're elevated three more feet in the air um, and um, they can see farther. Um, so um, they can see forever and you, using your terrain uh, um, to get in close to them. So spawn stocks, the only people are like, well, what if I put a blind up? Well, you don't have time to set up a blind. There's no permanent water sources and you just don't have the time with the pressure. You need to be mobile. You know, every half mile, every mile, find a high spot or get on top of your vehicle and glass. Uh, and you want to just keep glassing. 30-minute sessions of glassing back and forth, back and forth, and gritting your areas, and uh, you'll, you'll run into them. For me, I think one of the big things I would tell people is use the back of your truck to get elevation, and whether it's your tailgate or your topper, and, and to get that elevation to look through uh, the mesquite that's through there. There's a lot of undulation in that country that it looks flat, but there are little dips and draws, and, and it's a big animal. But it's uh, it can definitely hide in in those places. And my strategy was uh, so I was on the stallion range, and my strategy was to get east to the mountains and get some elevation, and then try and glass right. And while I was I was probably halfway through the column, so uh, half the people had already been released to be uh, to go hunt that that Friday afternoon. And on my way, probably five or six miles to the east, I had seen six or seven different oryx drop already people just stopping getting out of the truck and they're on the first thing that they saw and i'm not going to tell somebody um, what their experience should be but I, i'll tell you really really high success rates here don't shoot the first oryx that you that you see because you'll end up shooting a, a brownie right isn't that what they call uh the yearling oryx yeah. and it's yeah. it's deceptive uh how big they are because 
very few of us, if any of us, have actually seen an oryx in the field. Uh, and so being able to field judge or understand distance or anything like that is going to be near impossible. And and I saw these guys just, they would stop, they'd jump out, and, and it became a little bit of a rodeo. And uh, and if you if you wait and you're patient, you just get away from some people. These orcs were everywhere. They really were. And it, the the hunt that I had was the best case scenario for every element that there was. And so I would tell people with the disclaimer of this is what happened to Everett, but it's it's probably not going to happen this way because when I was dismissed and allowed to go hunt Friday at noon. 30 minutes later, I had my oryx on the ground and the, I had driven five miles and was finally away from other people. They had peeled off on different roads and I had gone towards uh, the East part and I had started to slow down to just kind of look around and I saw shadows through this mesquite little thicket. And so I got out of my truck and, and threw my binos up and there were seven or eight oryx in there. And the last one that stepped out was again, I've never seen an oryx in real life, but I said, that's big enough for me. Ended up being a 36 inch cow, which is a really nice orc. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I I was able to to put about a 200 yard stock on her, get to 180 yards and and take a shot off my shooting sticks with my 300. And and with the one shot, she ran about 60, 70 yards and she dropped. I kind of came uh, back to my truck. I watched her drop and saw, you know, good amount of blood, but I came back to my truck and like you said, you can drive off range. Well, I'm all by myself. Couldn't get anybody to come with me. It's a, you know, 1500 mile drive. And what you tell people in the safety brief is if you're going to drive off range, have somebody right in front of you so that if there's something there, you don't drive over it. I am crept up in my steering wheel, trying to see over my hood and driving as slowly as I can getting out and checking around me. Cause again, I'm very, <laughs> very concerned about UXO or anything else. And, and I drive uh, up to my Oryx and I get about 40 yards away, stop, get out of the truck. And these, these animals, not only are they tough, but man, they can defend themselves if they need to. Right. And so I saw these videos from Nat Geo and everywhere else on the internet about lions trying to attack these these antelope and nope it's not happening when you've got horns like this and so i was really concerned about these 36 inch daggers that were on top of this animal's head i I picked up a rock i threw it at the animal said hey orcs you there orcs anything happening nothing right and so i'm really being very very cautious and you hear about guys being gored with just animals uh you know deer and elk throughout the, the season it's rare but it does happen every year and I really did not want to become that statistic for, for Oryx, right? And I walk up to the back of the animal and I, I, I kick the back leg and the back leg kicked back at me. I'm like, okay, we're going to give it just a little <laughs> bit longer. I go back to my truck and, and I wait about another 20, 30 minutes and I come up and, and, and you know, she expired by then and uh, was able to drive my truck and, and get some shade because it was 95 degrees. And, and this is October, right? So it's definitely hot and meat here is an issue that I think people don't prepare for and really need to. And so I tried to park my truck to get shade on, uh, on the animal. I was, I was, uh, quartering her out and New Mexico has, um, some pretty, uh, pretty strict, uh, game meat laws, some wanton waste laws where you have to take all four quarters, the, the loins, and then is it 75% of the neck meat? Is that right? Yeah. Yes, sir. And so you, you really have to be aware of, of that neck meat um, provision as well. 
And there is some incredible roast meat up there too. The the amount of meat that they have on their neck is worthwhile to to oh, take. Yeah. So not only are you legally uh, obligated, but there's a real there's really good meat there. And and so I ended up getting her in, in the truck. But I mean, I don't I don't see how you could do any better than what I did. And I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that I was very very fortunate to get what I got. And and I had a plan and I was prepared. And I I've practiced a lot on my shooting sticks, which I think is ex- excellent advice. You're not going prone in the mesquite and the Okatia and anything else. It's prickly or pointy. It lives down there in New Mexico. And uh, this was one question I was going to ask you, are there any other dangers other than the UXO that people should be concerned about? But there's uh, you're, you're, you're just, even with terrain, you're not going to be able to go prone. So make sure you're practicing on those, those shooting sticks. But my, my success Part of it was I was just very blessed to have the experience that I did, but I think the other part was I I approached this with with a lot of attention to what is my strategy, how am I going to try to do this, what are the key things to it, and and I think I found success because of that. Yeah, man, congratulations on your hunt too, man. It sounds like it was awesome, and uh, what you'd be surprised, you know, I think because I put a lot of information out there, but um, very few hunters actually do call me like you did. You know, um, you know, I probably talked to a lot of hunters via email, a lot of questions bring you, but no one really calls, um, you know, maybe 10, 15 hunters out of a thousand will call and be detailed like you were. And so that's, that's kind of, kind of surprising to me, you know, as well as that I don't get a lot of more call, telephone calls, but a lot of things that made the emails suffice a lot, you know, to try to remedy that, but. Going back to your dangers and stuff that you had your questions is rattlesnakes. You know, rattlesnakes is, is a big deal in those hotter September, October, even up into November um, is a deal that you got to worry about. That's one thing when you're out there in the desert is rattlesnakes can be an issue. No one's ever gotten bit, but you want to make sure that you are keeping uh, uh, keep an eye on on where you're placing your hands and you're sitting down in the desert um, because of that. And and again, all the UXO items and stuff, they're in the, it's it's a precaution, right? We always just gotta be diligent, but we do a really good job to make sure you guys are safe. We just you still still need to do your part. I just want to make sure everybody's like you said. There's not line mines everywhere. Um, it's a desert and, and there's no grazing, you know, uh, other than the oryx. You know, so there's a lot of deserts pristine still, and you know, and there's still areas that, of course, are test impact areas that are fenced where you can't go. And believe it or not, we've had people move the cones and drive past the signs. You know, I actually was in a court proceeding, had to testify. Lawyers drilling me in on how could they get in there? Well, he said he went in through here, and I'm like, there's no way. You know, and they're like, well, what have I told you? The game warden says you, the game warden said that you could do that, and I said they're mistaken. There's no way that person could get in that country without passing signs and cones. There's no way. So people will do that either through pressure to harvest, or they really don't take it serious. You know, they just I just I want to get to the other side. You know, and I just need to cross this closed area. So I'm just going to zip through here. No one's going to see me. You know, the areas are well coned, well signed. And uh, we do a good job of making, keeping, make sure everyone's safe. Yeah. Any suggestions on uh, after you've harvested your oryx, what, uh, what you should be prepared for? One first thing you want to make sure he's expired and dead. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's just no joke. Uh, you know, uh, we have had several situations where the hunter, you know, shot the animal. It's, 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 it's dying and they go up, oh, let's go get the truck. 
They come pull up with the truck and Orc sees a truck and takes off, you know, uh, or they go and get the game cart. They come get the game cart. They left the rifles in the truck and the Orc's cousin takes off. So make sure the animal's down and, and, and dead and tagged uh, before you leave the animal. It's, it's happened several times, many times, actually. And you're talking about charging, you know, these animals, they have this, this repetition of being rep, repetition of being very aggressive. Um, but the, they're like any other animal. If you're cornered, if they're injured, they are going to come after you. But I can't tell you how the thousands of orcs I've been in close proximity to and never been attacked or chased or anything like that. In the several instances, people that have gotten gored have been through, they're just rushing into my car and goring my car. Well, that's just because they just want to get across the side of the road. You know, they're not they're not attacking your car. It's just a matter of them running into you. Uh, in hunting situations, the, the most dangerous is, like you said, uh, the animal's expiring. You think he's expired and he's not. Uh, we did have an animal gore the, uh, the truck pulled up to the animal. The animal got up and gored the, the vehicle, broke its horn and got jammed underneath the bumper. And we've had a game warden and a hunter get chased by a wounded animal. Game warden had to dispatch his, his pistol uh, to render the animal along with the hunter. If an animal's injured, just like we would be, if you're put in a corner, and you're surviving, you'll do whatever you need to try to survive. So that's, like you said, it's good that you're being cautious uh, to make sure the animal was down and dead. They have a severe will to live. And so that that's that's one thing I just wanted to add to what you said. I had coolers ready to go with ice as well. And I think that was um, a suggestion from somebody who's hunted Oryx before and, and just having, I, I had four, um, oh, I forget how big they are, big, big old Cabela's coolers, right? And I ended up quartering my animals out, putting those in the each quarter in the ice and getting those cooled down as quickly as I could. And then I had, um, I think it was wasps started to swarm me too pretty quickly, and which surprised me. And I have an allergy to, to bees and wasps. And so I was very, oh. very concerned about what was going on there. And so I, I think that you can't be quick enough with getting that meat taken care of and getting it in the cooler and, and then moving your way to the gate to check out. So definitely a, a suggestion from me, anything else on, on meat care that you would, you would say? Um, you know, exactly right. Is just to, uh, if you're having to pack that out, have something to put them in. You can imagine the people that just show up with tarps, you know, and just like, <laughs> you know, and, and it's trying to explain to him, Hey, you need to get that, that meat off the bed of your truck because that bed of your truck is just a skillet and it's gonna gonna cook the end of your meat it's gonna be no good you know you need to get elevated get air under it get some ice on it as soon as possible um i guess the, one of the things that you mentioned that was that um a lot of people don't realize um you probably use the the, the gutless method um but if you people that are going to gut the animal bring out the animal hole they have a big surprise and you weren't fortunate to experience that, but gutting an oryx is not fun. Um, all their in, all their insides and their uh, organs are all connected to their back. It doesn't fall out like a deer or an elk. You you literally uh, you can take someone forty five minutes to gut an oryx that's not experienced, um, just because it is tremendous work. Um, uh, to try to get a, a gut and oryx if you don't know what you're doing. And that's just because everything is attached. 
It, it does not fall out at all. It literally have to cut it all out from the back and break starting from the esophagus down. And it makes it difficult, especially if you're, you're wanting to cape the animal because then you can't cut all the way through the, to the neck, you know, cut the brisket open. Uh, very difficult to do because their, their cavities are so deep. Uh, most people that, uh, I just have stories and bond stories. You drive up with someone that looks like they just were given they just got birthed they're just covered in blood and it's just like what happened to you you know and they're full of mud and they didn't bring a tarp and just it's just like a murder scene and it's like yeah this guy's never got a norse before and so um it can be a chore so make sure that you understand that sometimes in those heat environments when it's really hot gutting an animal can be strenuous man it can be a chore um uh and and some people are lucky enough to um drive up to them but that means you have to gut them and that's usually a big a big deal a lot of people don't realize their hides are thick their hides are super thick especially around the neck so make sure you bring a couple of knives do you recommend going gutless method over doing the, the traditional field dress you know what I do. My preference is that, but that's only because I usually shoot animals where I can't drive up to them. <laughs> I just, I'm like, yeah, I try to get away from people. I try to, you know, take my time and almost all my animals are not known near road. And so it's, I'm always packing them out if I want to or not, but if I could put one into the truck, I'd love to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and that, but I was going to ask you the, the other thing about that. And I asked you, but the other thing to tell you is that you can't do that alone. You can't load an oryx by yourself. It's impossible. You need at least three people, two if they're they're strong. And you can do some techniques with two people, like dig dig holes and put your back tires in to lower the tailgate down to load uh, an oryx if you have two people. But loading an oryx hole is no yeah, joke. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it for darn sure. It's If you're a Western hunter and you know the gutless method, it is... I was under an hour from the time I pulled up to that oryx to the time I was driving away from it. I can't imagine digging holes to try and lower that tailgate to get that thing in hole. And then you've got to worry about that skin being on the meat and it's hot like that. You know, it's just, it's like everything else. If you don't take care of it in the field, it's not going to taste any good on the table. And I got to tell you that oryx, uh, was, was very good. It, it's a, oh, yeah. it's a firm texture, but it's really mild too, which I think is why a lot of people say it's the best wild game. Cause it tastes exactly like what beef does. It doesn't have that fat and that marbling, but there's there's almost zero game taste to it, and and I have found it to be really uh, it's a really nice meat to cook too. Yeah, it is. It is really good, you know. And it's so good that we actually have a what's called a roadkill list, as gross as that sounds. And and there's these orcs that get hit by vehicles. These people, it's probably a five year long list. There's a hundred people on there, and they wait four or five years to get a call from a game warden and say, hey, we got hit one by a vehicle. And they'll come up and grab them. They'll come up and get it. If it's salvageable, they they come up and get it. So we got people on a roadkill list, um, and you have to respond within, you know, 30 minutes or so. It's, it's, it's not suitable for anybody that's out of state or anything. And and so, yeah, the meat is tremendous. I, I think that uh, that it is it is so good. And the thing about it is so lean. You do want to make sure you cook it in a medium rare. Um, you know, less than a burger, they make excellent burgers, but your steaks, you definitely want it in a medium rare, but it is, 
It is fantastic. I can't uh, I can't say enough good things about it. For me, antelope is my favorite, and I love the flavor that comes from from pronghorn. But my oryx that I, that I got was was it's a mild flavor. It's a really firm texture. So the when you slice it thin, and I'm thinking like uh, some steaks that I have done, it it can be very easily overcooked and then become tough. And and so that airing on that side of medium rare, I think, is really good advice. I, I've sliced it thin, put it over risotto. That was really good. Just doing salt and pepper and and doing a really nice um, sear on it and then serving it uh, has been uh, another favorite of mine. I haven't done anything ground with it, to be honest. I've got, uh, this was what, two years ago now, I guess, but I, I have the ground still and, and I haven't really done much with that, but burgers sound really fantastic. I, I think people who go on this hunt mostly go... Uh, for meat and and there's a lot of it size of an elk so you're getting a good substantial quantity there but the flavor of this and and just uh, the the exoticness of it too i think is is probably part of it but guys i talk to they're like yeah i'll take a broken horn tag anytime you'll give it to me and i'll i'll take oryx meat anytime there's an opportunity so i think i think people should not underestimate that that part of it as well yeah for sure and those individuals that have drawn the once in a lifetime there's other opportunities, right? So they have the McGregor hunts are not once in a lifetime, which is another military installation just south of us. And then you're off range and you're broken horse. So people that get there once in life still can try to get in and, and, and still hunt. So want to make sure everybody's reminded about that. Is there any, any favorite recipes you want to share on Oryx? You know, I'm a simple guy, backstrap, medium rare, you know, a burger and I'm good to go. All right. All right. There's a, a guy at the front gate who was there. Is he always there with his trailer, the taxidermist? At the stallion range, uh, yes. Um, he's he's always there at the stallion range. And at the Rose Canyon range, there's a, a different a different set of guys. Yeah, that was interesting to me when we get there and, and there's a guy that has this full – he's got a camp set up with his family. And he has this very big enclosed trailer. He's got freezers all packed in it. And then on the outside, he has a, a European and he's got a full shoulder mount hanging on the outside. And he will, when you come out of the gate, uh, you can stop and see him. And he was really reasonably priced. And I think he had about an eight to 10 month turnaround time, but he's got to be making his living just on Oryx right there because the number of people that come through on those hunts and it's a one-stop kind of shop. He'll cape it out for you, do everything you need to do. It's uh, it was almost kind of a, uh, a, a carnival type feel because he would have all these mounts and guys would be standing around telling their stories. And so you could kind of compare, you know, what did you get and what, did, you know, what's this? And that's when I really started to see all the different sizes of horns that were coming through. And we talked about those brownies, those first year guys, and they've got about a 12 inch kind of horn and it's rounded on top, which if you've never seen one before, is still kind of impressive. But then you get into these larger, more mature bulls and cows that have these, 30 inch plus horns and the bulls typically is this right. They typically have a little bit thicker horn, but a little bit shorter than the cows and the cows are a little bit thinner, but a little bit longer. Yeah. Right. And so um, there is some arcs look the same. So um, whether they're a subadult or adult, um, they're, 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 they're physically going to look the same, just a size difference. Right. And so, these guys have little dimorphism regarding between the sexes, and it's basically the horn characteristics. 
So like you mentioned, cows are longer. Males, males are usually shorter but thicker. So they have heavier bases. Cows have thinner bases. And males, usually that lower half of that horn, have more well-defined ridges. They have really robust ridges. And so that's going to be your key. But, you know, someone like me that see thousands of oryx, I can tell, okay, that's a cow, that's a bull, that's a cow, that's a bull. Um, um, just by looking at horns. And that's a general rule. You get those tweeners that are right in the middle and you're like, I don't know what that is, you know? And in the field, that's very difficult to, to do. If you've never seen one in the field, you just know that's a, an, an oryx and it looks good. Um, but the problem is that these oryx, once you get to brownies, once they get to about three or four month, months of age, they change color and they have their adult um, color which is going to be a gray, you know, the white face, black uh, markings. And then they look just like the adult. And so what the problem, another problem that hunters face is that because you have sub-adults that hang together and they look just like the adults. So if you've never seen one in the field, you come upon a, 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 a herd of sub-adults and they stand there. And because they're not, they're tolerable, more tolerable, of hunters because they really haven't experienced the hunt situation. They don't know that that we're that big of a threat. So they'll stand there and let you get out of the vehicle and they pick out the, the, the biggest one and they shoot it. And it's a 28 inch sub adult, you know, and the horn characteristics between a sub adult and adult is actually the horn. The horn on a sub adult will have a gray woody texture look to it, like a chalk, chalky look to it. And it's not developed, no, not well-defined rings. They're not shiny and black. They're a dull gray. And what's a problem is that hunters just see them and think, oh, that's the biggest one. And he looks big. He looks huge. Well, he's standing next to a four-month-old and he's maybe a year, a year, a year, a year old or a year and a half year old oryx. And he looks huge. And they shoot him and they, they don't know, you know, so anywhere between 25 to 30% of the harvest will be subadults just because of that. This year was a lot lower. Um, and I don't know what that is. We can go into some population dynamics that we may think has been happening if you want to get into that. But for the most part, the subadults, um, look a lot like the adult version. Um, but, the key characteristic is going to be looking for the nice, shiny horns. If you don't have, if you cannot judge body size, if they're they're all the same size, then I'm going to, okay, look for the horns. All right, the horns. Are they nice and shiny? Is the sun shining off of them? Or is they just, are they dull? And you'll get a lot of those that are half gray and the tops are, are nice and black, which is that transition, that two and a, two and a half year old. Uh, that's into an adult two to three year old that's going into to adulthood and he's broomed off his his a sub adult sheath that that horn actually peels off that sub adult horn actually gets robot it's fibrous it's almost like wood um, and it just comes off um, so in the field as a hunter on orcs hunting that if if you're just out there to have the experience it doesn't matter right you're having fun but we do want to try to harvest. Those, we, we really want you to harvest cows <laughs> we, we, to control a population. Um, that, that's really what we'd want you to do, but it's so difficult. We've actually tried to do that by escorting people and trying to kill cows. 
And by the last day, we can't get a, the hunter can't get a, uh, uh, you know, can't get a, a, a shot on a cow. We want him to still harvest one. Okay, shoot that one, you know. And so it, it, it sometimes it's difficult to tell. And um, so the 50, trying to do cow hunts only doesn't work. Um, but yeah, these, these horns can get up to the longest, the record, uh, world records, like 48, 49 inches. Uh, obviously in Africa, here in New Mexico, that record's 43, almost pushing 44 inches. Um, and, but these are, these are diamonds in the rough, right? We probably kill three to four orcs over 40 inches. Um, and, and so they're very rare to get to 40 inches. Um, and it's comparable to what Africa, the studies have done over there. It's comparable. They're, the 40 inches aren't just running around in Africa either. Um, their average is about that 33 inch is for a bull and 34, 35 inches for a cow. That is the average. That's your realistic expectation when you come to White Sands Missile Range. So if you kill, harvest anything above that, um, you're doing it. 35 inches above is a trophy quality animal for me, regarding what sex it is. Um, and so those horns, um, again, um, are key to help you differentiate between sexes. Uh, it give a general rule um, on that, as well as yeah, age. I got to tell you, if you plan on doing a shoulder mount, you better check with your wall space before you do that. Because it is, you know, you've got two two feet of head and then you've got three feet of horn above that. So they take up a huge amount of space. And I actually don't have mine back from the taxidermist yet. He's... Uh, He's still working on it, but he's promising me it's going to be done last week, right? So uh, yeah. we'll see what happens. But I would also tell people, um, I took the tail from mine, and they have these really long, beautiful black tails. And it's uh, it's kind of a traditional trophy, too, from uh, Africa that people do. So don't overlook the tail. I, I've, I have mine. Uh, tax it, uh, it was tan. And I think I'm going to make it into some type of uh, decorative fly swatter type of thing, which is what they would use them for in, in Africa. But whatever you do, I think it's really appropriate to memorialize this hunt. And, and whatever you, you choose to do, you should do something, I think. It's just a really special opportunity that has developed into a, a hard to do in a hard to draw type of experience. And if you're lucky enough to have one of these opportunities, I, I don't sell yourself short, uh, savor every moment of it, whether it's the build up to the hunt, the actual hunt, or then afterwards when you're sharing the, the meals and, and talking about it and relaying the, the stories uh, to it as well. I think all of that is, is really um, part of it. And then I think one last thing I, I would hit on is my Oryx came, I was right next to the Trinity test site which I thought was really cool. That's when they, they dropped the first atomic bomb. I forget what year it actually was, but I'm being, I've been assured there's no radioactivity left that my, my Oryx is just fine, but it's, it's a really cool piece of history to know that we went from dropping a nuke to ever being able to harvest an Oryx right here. And so there's, there's stuff like that, that I think people um, should take a moment, look around, experience have you been to the footprints that are on white sands missile range that are in stone you know what i have not and so uh i pass by them all the time <laughs> and uh you know i've probably passed thousands of times in the last 19 years um and those are actually and the main one of the main reasons is that they are within the national white sands monument uh and that's with inside the um, Oryx proof fence. 
So it's not just like I can hop a fence and drive right to it, you know. Um, but uh, it, I, I have not done that. But I, I've seen pictures and, and read about them and stuff. But no, I have I have not done that. But to go to your your question about the nukes and stuff, that you have more, you'd get more radiation if you flew from LA to New York uh, than you would from anywhere near there. Well, I, I, I'm glad that I'm safe and I'm not glowing or yeah. something, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I, I love uh, one of the things I do when I, I travel a lot and and on my, when I do my hunting research, I have a specific section and it's all just about what is else, what else is there around the area? And you have um, so much in New Mexico for both um, primitive man, but then expansion and the cultures and the history that's there too. Uh, up in Albuquerque, you know, you've got some amazing museums and zoos as well. And I, I really would encourage people to to take a moment and just explore everything else that's around there. Because when I went through, it was a little bit of a whirlwind trip. I was just coming off of a Wyoming antelope hunt. And it was on my way back up north to go on another antelope hunt. So it kind of got sandwiched in and I didn't spend enough time uh, exploring. And I really wish I did. If I were to come back down there, Gilbert, do you think we could go see those footprints on White Sands? Yeah, you know what? They they have a situation where I think they have um, tours and we'd have to schedule that in and then go in there and, and check them out for sure. Well, I, I'm coming down to do some javelina hunting probably next winter in Arizona. So I'll make sure that we we connect and, and get caught up on that. Have we missed anything on Oryx? Um, um, I'm, I, I, I just think that one of the things that we probably really, we've talked about, um, what, but really haven't really got into depth about is just their, the way they adapt to the desert environment. You know, um, you know, when they were in the Red Rock breeding facility, um, they monitored how much water they drank. And um, they had this uh, water source that they would sweep every day um, and then count tracks to see what species was coming to the water because uh, they were penned with the ibex. Uh, and um, 30 days was the longest time that um, they went without water uh, before they came to drink. Um, and I believe and I know that they can go months without water. They have a unique ability, like most desert species, to be able to get all the moisture from their foliage and what they're eating and stuff. What they have is something really unique that sets them apart from any native species is that they are able to elevate their internal body temperature to 116, 118 degrees without cooking their brain. A normal deer, or elk, or bighorn, 107 degrees, they're shutting down. Their lethal temperatures, their brain's cooking, their organs are failing. These guys can elevate their temperatures to keep their bodies cool and their, their brains cool before they even start sweating. Before they even start trying to cool their bodies down, they're at 116 degrees, 16 degrees. They can take it to that high before they're even hurt. They're, they're, they're a remarkable animal. Um, that supersedes any of our native species. And you can combine that with the be able to breed year round with no rut um, and, you know, have 1.2 calves per year, um, no predation. Um, it is a huge task for the department as well as White Sands Missile Range to manage these animals at a level that we can keep them confined to where they're at, which is impossible to do, but we're doing our best. 
And so their physical biology of what they can do is is remarkable. I can't imagine what it would take to live on the savanna in Africa, but what it takes to live in the deserts of New Mexico. Uh, you're a better man than me, man. I'll, I'll stick with my winters up here in Montana. It's uh, not for me for sure. Right. And you think about in Africa where, you know, in the Kalahari game perverse there, that lions, they did a study on predation on Ginsbuck. You know, and I already indicated that about 5% of the adults uh, are, have a mortality rate of 5%, but the adult lions prefer killing sub-adults and calves and not adults. You know, an adult lion weighs 500 pounds as much as a, what our oryx weighs. You know, oryx bulls can weigh up five to 600 pounds. You have a predator that weighs just as big as you and you don't want to mess with it. That, that says something about that animal. You know what I mean? And our biggest predator here, a very large mountain lion in the desert, in the desert here, 200 pounds is a very large, large cat. Um, they, I, I doubt that they get, I mean, they do get that big, but that, that is as big as they get, you know? And, and so, um, these guys have no natural predators. And so they have to be hunted and, and this is the way we have to man. Well, I, again, I can't say enough good things about my experience and would encourage people to to do what they can to find uh, the opportunity as well. Gilbert, I really appreciate you being here. I loved uh, everything about our conversation. I hope in the future people can listen to this and you can share it with those who are uh, coming up and, and wanting to know more about Oryx hunting and you can pass them along this information. Hopefully it's been helpful for them. And if people wanted to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Yeah, for sure. Um, my government work email is very long. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd take us forever to, to say that email. But for the most part, you can call uh, my phone number. It's 575-993-6066. That's the cell number there for, for work and uh, be happy to answer you. And then that number is also posted in the Game of Fish Rules booklet. Um, so you don't have to write it down. It's in the actual, in the proclamation there and the rules information under Oryx, there's two contact numbers there and both of them, my office phone and my cell phone. So, um, you can, uh, call it anytime. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes for sure. And people can, can reference that. Gilbert, I'd love to give my guests the final word, anything you want to pass on to people listening. Well, I just, uh, I think we've gone over a lot of it. You know, I just want to make sure everyone understands what the amount of work it takes to get these hunts off in the ground. You know, constantly, there's times where I don't know if we're going to hunt into the day of the hunt. You know, at the briefing area, I've had missions extended where we have to hold off an hour or half a day, you know, or a whole day. And so, uh, it's just a lot of coordination between our Wismer managers like Patrick and Brian and, and the department of game and fish to make these things happen. And it's real time. It's real time. Um, so I just think that people don't realize the significance of what it takes to get these hunts on a closed military active, active military installation up and going. And, and we just have a lot of people that are behind the scenes that get it done for us. We just had to be grateful for the opportunity, and we just want to thank those people. You know, my my assistant, my uh, admin assistant, Nadia Martinez, is, plays a big role. No one ever hears from her. She encrypts all the driver's license numbers and the social security numbers and date of birth and has to follow up because you can't read their writing or they forget something. And it's a daunting task to do over. You know, we do probably 2,700, 3,000 people. 
including the guests and hunters. And it's a great task to, to do. And I just want to make sure everybody acknowledges the fact that it's just not me. There's a whole team of people, uh, including uh, obviously the Army, the, the physical security um, that make the end of Department Game Fish that all make this happen. If this episode inspired you to think about Oryx, let us know by either dropping a review or a note on Instagram. At the end of each episode, we usually leave you with a few links or resources we call Chasing Rabbits. This lets you dig deeper on your own, but as I said in the beginning, there just isn't that much about hunting Oryx in the Southwest U.S. Gilbert's contact info is listed in the show notes, and I also want to offer this to any other fellow Oryx hunters. Reach out to me directly, and I will do my best to share what is truly a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and what I think helped my success. Hunters helping hunters is just one way we can elevate the hunt. Well, all my friends have gone away. They say I did the walking. What can I say? I did the walking. They used to walk beside me. They turned to something beside me. They turned away. But I keep walking on. They say I did the walking. Now they say I'm gone.